America is still the land of rugged individualists.
than it is in keeping with the worldview of Jesus Christ. In one of her more powerful speeches from one of her novels, she writes, The word we is as lime poured over men, which sets and hardens to stone and crushes all beneath it. It is the word by which the depraved steal the virtue of the good, by which the weak steal the might of the strong, by which the fools steal the wisdom of the sages. But I am done with this creed of corruption. I am done with the monster of we, the word of serfdom, of plunder, of misery, falsehood, and shame. And now I see the face of God, and I raise this God over the earth, this God whom men have sought since men came into being, this God who will grant them joy and peace and pride, this God, this one word, I. Powerful. So many of us buy into it, don't we? But that's the story of the individual. But from the earliest of biblical prophets through to John and Paul and Christ himself, quite a different story is told. In fact, the biblical story begins with the assertion that we are, in fact, not meant to be alone and separate, and that we are truly our brother's keeper. And at the beginning of God's more specific revelation of his intent to work in human history as our Savior, he does not choose an individual, but he chooses a people. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number but than any of the peoples, for you the fewest of the peoples. He chose peoples, not an individual. And ever since then, the Jewish experience is one of collective identity. Biblical scholar Marvin Wilson points out, all Israelites are mutually accountable for one another and they participate mutually in the life of one another. The very concept of the sacredness of human life is basic to the idea of corporate personality. In the Mishnah, we read, he who destroys a single life is considered as he who destroyed the whole world. And he who saves a single life is considered as having saved the whole world. Jesus carried this understanding forward for us when he taught us to pray using the collective. Our Father, give us our, etc., etc. How many of us pray in the collective? And all the writers of the New Testament know this same understanding. Peter even calls the church by the same collective as Moses understood the Israelites, the people of God. We are the people of God. Joseph Fitzmaier said, there is no mere individualistic experience for Christians, but a corporate one. A corporate one. St. Paul captures it brilliantly for us, right in the middle of a homily devoted fully to this very idea. He says, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. We are one body. One body. Wilson again. In Christianity, God and one's neighbor belong inseparably together. We must never become so self-centered and self-sufficient that we fail to grasp this fact. For the concept of the priesthood of the believer means that each Christian functions as a priest not only unto God but unto his neighbor. 
And what is so powerful about our passage this morning is Paul goes to great lengths to explain to us the reality of the dependence, the common life we share with each other. We are in the fourth essay of 1 Corinthians. Corinthians is made up of five essays. We're in the fourth one, Men and Women in Worship, which runs from 11.2 through 14.40. And we are just today starting the third homily within this essay. Gifts and the Nature of the Body. The homily is made up of 19 sections, or cameos, as Kenneth Bailey calls them, and the composition is classic Paul, and it looks like this. In the first four sections, verses 1 through 6, he gives us an introduction, and then he does his ring composition. The fifth section in the 18th and 19th match each other. There are many gifts. The next, the, the next section, the body of Christ, verses 12 through 14, matches the body of Christ, verses 25 through 27. And right in the middle, Paul uses the parable of the human body. And remember what we have learned consistently through this series. Paul's point, the climax of his arguments, is most often in the middle of his homilies. And this is important to remember. It's important to remember because it helps us in understanding the greater point Paul is trying to make and not get lost in all the details as we love to do. We love to get lost in the details. The heart of this homily is the metaphor of the human body. And this is where we're going to spend our time in this homily, this week and next, because this is the heart of what Paul is trying to say to us. Okay? We're all one body. We are all one body. And while we are unique and diverse individuals, we are not to live for ourselves. We are to live for each other. But interesting, and, and that's what Paul says, Paul couches Paul couches the center of his homily with this. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Okay? These are the keys that unlock what Paul's trying to say in this homily. Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. Try not to lose those keys. Interestingly, though, those keys get lost. In this very homily, Paul writes to prevent... Division and self-reliance has often caused those things. Because we focus on the details and we lose the bigger picture. We lose the forest for the trees. The church is divided along the question of gifts, is it not? Yes, it is. And if you've spent any time in Christianity, you know that. Every branch has a different opinion of what the gifts of God are all about. And it becomes more and more divided all the time. And see, this happens because of the lists of gifts that are at the beginning of the chapter and at the end of the chapter. Paul, Paul starts with the gifts thing and he ends with the gifts thing. And because in our lot, uh, in our, uh, just lost it, what's that word? Uh, linear thinking, in the way we tend to write and make arguments, we come up with our main point at the end. Paul's is in the middle. So, but instead, we look at this and think, oh, look, he's talking about all the gifts. So we want this entire chapter to be about the gifts. And people use it for that. And boy, we go crazy. We debate the, the gifts. We rank them. We categorize them. We argue about exactly what they mean. We argue even, are the gifts for everybody? 
Are the gifts for all time? Are the gifts only for the early church? Are the gifts for this, for that? The first Christians, and on and on and on it goes. I really love what Gordon Fee has to say about the details of this particular homily. He says, The hope, of course, lies with verse 11, that the one and the same spirit will do as he pleases, despite the boxes provided for him on both sides of the issues. I love that. We, we always have boxes we invite God into, don't we? God, just come into this box. And when he doesn't come in, we drag him in, push him in. And he keeps trying to get out, and we keep pushing him back in. No, this is God, and this is how it should be. But I think what Paul is doing here in, in, this, in this homily is what we have seen him do throughout our study of 1 Corinthians. Okay? What he, what he does is this. He takes on the specific problems within the Corinthian church. And here what he's taking on is a combination of some sort of abuse of the gifts and an ongoing division in the church because the gifts are being abused by the Corinthians. Okay? Then what he does is he uses that problem, or those details, if you will, as the background for what he really wants to say, not just to the Corinthians, but for all of us, the greater church. Okay? And that is what we have seen him say throughout this letter. To be a Christian is to live like Jesus Christ. And then he consistently lays out for them what that looks like. Okay? See, he knew here that the immediate problem he now has to deal with is surrounds the gifts, whatever that problem was exactly. Even scholars can't agree on what was going on in Corinth. Okay? The fact is, something was going around and around the gifts. Paul said, okay, this is a problem. I'll deal with it. And what the problem really was, was further indication that among the Corinthian believers, there was no true sense of community. There was no sense of seeking the good of the other. There was no understanding of the reality that man is not self-sufficient, but he is dependent on God and each other. There's the problem. And we have seen that since we started Corinthians, correct? We just spent three weeks at the communion table. Was there any sense of commun community at the communion table in Corinth? No. The rich were abusing the poor. And we saw it when everything in Corinth was about me, 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 me. Somebody was sleeping with his stepmother and said, I can do that. And on and on. Just go through Corinthians. It's about me, 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 me. They didn't care about anyone else. Us didn't mean a thing to them. And Paul deals with the individual issue, and then he gets to the heart of the matter, which is for all of us. But because we don't want to deal with that issue in our own lives, we've taken Corinthians and ignored all that. And we go to the details. And let's fight about the details. Because now we don't have to get right to our own hearts, which is, no, it's about me. It's all about me. We should be doing whatever is good for me, not what is good for us. Okay? So, this is why the climax is this parable of the human body. It's an extended metaphor about the human body, and it's pure brilliance. This use of this metaphor by Paul is pure brilliance. Here's the thing, though. The body metaphor was not unique in, human in antiquity. Okay? There are many examples of it, actually. But what makes Paul's use of this body metaphor brilliant is that while most others use the body metaphor to explain and justify existing social and political structures, all right, an example of that is a caste system. I lived in India for a while, and this is where I learned this. As early as 1000 BC, they would use the body metaphor to justify the caste system. And how it went, 
I'll give you the basic, because it's a long extended. But basically, how it went was this. The Brahmin caste, which is the priestly caste, that's the highest caste. They were the head of society. The warriors were the arms of society. The traders and the, the landowners were the legs of society. And, of course, the last caste, the servants, were the feet of society. And that, that's a, that, that metaphor was being used, as, like I said, as early as 1000 BC. Paul, however, doesn't use the body metaphor to justify existing dynamics. He uses it to shatter the status quo and to insist that instead of there being a superior, inferior dynamic because of the diversity of the individual, there is actually unity and equality of purpose within the diversity of the individual. Unity and equality of purpose within diversity of the individual. Now, I want to make a quick side note. Epictetus was a Greek philosopher. Now, he also used the body metaphor the same way Paul did. Now, I don't know if he was influenced by Paul, but it's a fascinating thing to think about. He was born right around the time Paul died, and here's an example of him using it. This just, when I found this, just blew me away. What are you? A human being. If you see yourself as something else, it is natural for you to want to live to old age, to be rich, to enjoy health. But if you regard yourself as a human and as part of a whole, for the sake of the whole, you may have to suffer illness, make a voyage and run risks, be in want, and even die before your time. Why then are you vexed? Do you not know that the foot, if detached, will no longer be a foot? So you too, if detached, will no longer be of humanity. For what is a human being? Part of the whole of humanity. Wow. There is no indication that Epictetus was a follower of Jesus Christ, but boy, did he get what Jesus said, didn't he? This is incredible. Where Anne Rand, Anne Rand, when we were reading that, did you capture like she was almost going at Paul? Like the, the weak and the foolish. Where Paul holds up the weak and the foolish as, as really what is strong. Here, Epictetus <coughs> nails the story of Jesus. Right here. Well, for the sake of the whole, you might have to suffer illness, make a voyage and run risks, be in want, and even die before your time. Take up your cross, Jesus said, and follow me. Where did Jesus go? To lay his life down in sacrificial love of others. My apology today was well-timed because I, I don't, I don't, I, I think we should live like this. I fully believe it. I, I don't. I have trouble just giving up time for others, never mind my life. <coughs> this echoes so perfectly of what we found in 1 Corinthians. Th this verse that Paul has used that I keep repeating that seems to capture the entire teaching of 1 Corinthians. Let no one seek his own good but that of his name. Powerful. This is what Paul's getting at. This is what Jesus was getting at. This is living like Christ. And all the problems in Corinth were because everyone was seeking their own good. And this is the piercing truth Paul is so brilliantly capturing in his own use of the metaphor. We are called to live for each other, not to ourselves. Do you know what cancer is in the most basic scientific understanding of cancer? Unlike other diseases which sort of attack us from the outside, cancer is our own cells that go bad. They go rogue. They stop 
doing what they're supposed to do. That's what cancer is. A cell that's supposed to be doing one thing decides, no, I'm, I'm going to just do my own thing. And then he attracts other ones to do it, and, other, and all of a sudden you have tumors. You have cancer and you die. Self-sufficiency is the great sin that destroys humanity. And boy, is that a tough message for the American church, isn't it? We are raised to be self-sufficient. We tell Christian men who aren't taking care of their families, they're blowing it. Be like a rock. Be a Chevy truck. And here's St. Paul and St. Peter and St. John and Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh, saying, no, 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 no. You're dependent on each other. St. Paul wrote it this way. He said, if the whole body were an eye, you eyes that want to just be your own body, well, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell? Think about it. Think of just an eye. Is that a body? No, that's a monster. It's like some B science fiction flick from the <laughs> 1950s. Bishop Tesman, Desmond Tutu put it even more jarringly. He said, a self-sufficient human being is subhuman. God has made us, so we need each other. That's what Epictetus said. If you don't want to be human, then pursue your self-interest. But if you're human, if you're human. And this is exactly Paul's point in this homily. We all need each other. We do. We all need each other. For the body to function properly, every part of it is necessary and valuable and must work for the good of the whole. <coughs> and see, sometimes, that, sometimes we get the body metaphor this far. We, we know that every part is necessary and valuable, but then we stop. But must work for the good of the whole. As we sit here living and breathing human beings, without even knowing it, our entire body is working for itself. I mean, for, e for each other, to make the body work. And working for the good of the whole is what the Holy Spirit, God in us, wants to teach us and wants to help us live. Know what Paul said early on in his homily. Paul said this early on. Only by the Holy Spirit can we say Jesus is Lord? It is important we don't miss the radical nature of this confession for the earliest Christians. As Fee writes, the use of Lord in such a context meant absolute allegiance to Jesus as one's deity and it set believers apart. This is not some simple utterance of these words. This is not a mental assent to this doctrine. That's a reduction of Christianity. It's what we've done. You don't need the Holy Spirit to say the words, Jesus is Lord. You don't even need the Holy Spirit to mentally agree that He's Lord. This is accepting Him as Lord of our life, the Lord we follow, the Lord we live like, or at least want to. Like I said earlier. We don't always do it, but that's what it means at minimum. I was reading this great blog, and this guy was sort of talking about this concept, Jesus is Lord, and he was like, just saying it, what... 
What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. That's like saying the, the I, I can't even remember his name. What, what's the leader in North Korea? Kim Jong? That's like saying he's your Lord. What? While you live in America? No, it's not. Move to North Korea. Subjugate yourself to him. Follow him. Live for him. Live the way he wants you to live. Then he'll be your Lord. Jesus is Lord. Bailey gives us more insight into this. The confession Jesus is Lord was not... Where am I, Bailey? Here we go. The confession Jesus is Lord was not a rationally provable concept. Logic cannot force the mind to that affirmation. The empire said Caesar is Lord. Anyone who affirmed Jesus is Lord was also saying Caesar is not Lord, and such a claim was dangerous. Christians who wanted to truly follow Jesus as Lord were challenging the very cult of the empire. Only the Holy Spirit could move the heart, mind, and will to the dangerous and mysterious affirmation, Jesus is Lord. There was no other way. And I suggest, in our age of rugged individualism, we too need the Holy Spirit to make us say, Jesus is Lord. To make Jesus our Lord. And to love others in the way he loves us. And here's how I think it starts. I think it starts by believing this is the way. Sacrificial love of others is the way, and acknowledging our way is not the way. I think this process starts by believing we are not supposed to be self-sufficient, but that we are dependent on each other. I think it starts by believing we are to seek the good of the other and wanting to move in that direction. Because once we want to move in that direction, then I think we might find we too will be filled like the first century Christians with the power of the Holy Spirit and we'll find we can live into the reality of being one body, one community, living for each other and loving each other. For in the final analysis, that is the whole reason to be filled with the Holy Spirit. As Paul wrote, what the Spirit does for one, he does for the common good of everyone else. The best way I can explain what I'm trying to say is, if you've ever, if you've ever been on the train system down in, outside of Manhattan, often the platform is in between the tracks. Okay, So if you've ever been there, it's in between the tracks. Now, if you are geographically challenged, and you don't know, when you stand on that platform, which way is south and which way is north, and let's say you're on the Connecticut side of the tracks, or in, in Connecticut, and you're standing in the middle of the platform, and there's two trains. If you don't know which way is Manhattan, and you want to go to Manhattan, you might get on the train that's going north. You're going to end up in New Haven. You're not going to be in Manhattan. That's how it goes with the Holy Spirit. He's trying to take us one place to be like Christ. To love sacrificially. And I hear Christians all the time say, well, well, there's the real cynical, I don't believe in the Holy Spirit, but that's because I, I, I think this whole concept of the Holy Spirit has been, again, another detail that we've just absolutely destroyed with all our arguments and stuff. But I think more it has to do with, we want the Holy Spirit, but we don't understand where the Holy Spirit's taking us. We're not on His train. We're on some other train. If we're into self, guess what? The Holy Spirit ain't helping. 
even maybe when it seems he is. My guess is it's something else. The Holy Spirit is God and wants us to be like him. And I think this is so often missed when talking about the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Spirit can do anything he wants with anyone he wants and give all sorts of gifts and empower people, do all sorts of amazing things, and that's awesome. And I have no problems with it. Both sides of the issues, I just love listening to them. But if the end result is not the individual working for the good of the whole and sacrificially loving others, then perhaps we're missing the whole point of being filled with the Spirit in the first place. And maybe that is why we are not experiencing more authentic Spirit-filled living, because we want the Spirit for our own benefit, but He wants to give Himself to us so we might benefit others. Might God help us all to be truly one with each other and love each other. Amen.